Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, with Richard Desmond off to bank his cheque for £450 million for selling Channel 5 to Viacom, what should be next for Channel 5? And has Viacom made a smart move? The editor of the Metro newspaper, Kenny Campbell, has moved into PR after 15 years at the helm. Is it inevitable that journalists are going to take the PR shilling as their second career? And cameras in courtrooms. Is it time to put the trusty court chalkboard artist out of work and let UK television broadcast more coverage of courtroom proceedings? Media Focus. And we're joined by two of the media best and brightest. Simon Books is Associate Editor of Sky News and Jonathan Roberts is Head of Communications for the UK Chamber of Shipping. Viacom, the owner of MTV, has confirmed it's buying Richard Desmond's Channel 5 for £450 million in cash. Desmond bought the channel just four years ago for a quarter of that price, £103 million. With Desmond laughing all the way to the bank, what do you think is next for Channel 5? Is this a sensible move for the American giant? And how will it change the media landscape in the UK, if at all? Simon? Well, it's obviously a, an incredibly important moment in, in British uh, public service broadcasting because it's the first time that we've had a, an America owner of a, you know, what used to be called a terrestrial channel, if you like. So I think everybody in the industry is going to be watching this very carefully. I mean, what's really interesting, I guess, about uh, Channel 5 is that against probably many expectations, Richard Desmond actually invested pretty heavily uh, by Channel 5 standards in original programming, and some of it's done pretty well. And uh, clearly it's done pretty well because uh, Desmond has been making £70 million pounds a, a year profit out of a, out of a channel that was loss-making when he, when he bought it. The big question, of course, is what sort of programme programming is uh, is Viacom going to make in the future. They're committed by the terms of their licence to to make half of their original programming in, in Britain. Um, or it has to be UK originated. So the question really is, is are they going to continue to make the sort of programming that was being made under the, the Ben Frau, Richard Desmond era? Or are they going to be making stuff which is much more uh, suited to their international outlets? And uh, everybody's going to be very interested to see see what happens there. Clearly, they've got a toehold in the terrestrial broadcasting Freeview EPG now with the acquisition of Channel 5. But do you think a lot of the traffic, a lot of the viewers that they drove to it came from the relentless promotion within Desmond's newspaper and magazine empire? Or do you think that this has come through from just organic? Well, I think uh, some of that must help. But, you know, in the end, uh, no channel can, can do business unless it's actually producing stuff people want to watch. And there's no doubt that quite a lot of what they were what they were doing people did want to watch you know some of their shows were outperforming channel 4 as you know Desmond did very well with with uh, channel 5 so jonathan what do you think viacom's motives are going to be in, in doing this they've had a relationship with sky on the sky platform they're obviously reaching some views do you think this is just about reaching a greater number of eyeballs yeah i, I think that's uh, exactly it viacom makes an awful lot of shows in uh, in the u.s many successful shows as well and I think they've probably looked at some of the success that Channel 5 has had over the last few years where they've invested in shows like Big Brother, which was really beginning to die out on Channel 4. They've invested money into it. They've got the license. They've made it work again. And it, they've drawn a new audience to Channel 5. And given that much of their programming in America, especially on MTV, is um, that kind of reality show type audience, Jersey Shore and programs like that I'm thinking of, I would imagine that they will be looking to uh, use Channel 5 as an outlet for existing programming as far as they can possibly take it. But Channel 5 really has been able to turn around over the last few years. 
if you think back maybe just 10, 15 years ago, the sort of cliche of it was almost that it was a kind of soft porn channel that yes. you'd go and watch after a night in the pub or um, you know, a few slightly exploitative freak show type documentaries. Whereas over the last few years, they've invested heavily. They, they had a huge coup with bringing both Neighbours and Home and Away, the staple of the student audiences, you know, to Channel 5, as well as The Ashes. That was a big deal for them. They've had limited amount of live football, but some European football as well. So they've been able to broaden out their audience base. And Viacom have done a great bit of business on this as well. There's no doubt that Desmond's made an awful lot of money out of this. But actually, the, the rumour was, when he was first looking to sell it, he was looking to get rid of it for £700 million. Mm. Viacom may well think that they've got a little bit of a bargain paying just 450 There was plenty of people lining up, wasn't there, Simon, when Desmond acquired it to say that this would, might have been a strategic mistake? Well, that's true. And, and, you know, as Jonathan says, the numbers have certainly come down from, you know, what we were originally talking about. £700 million was the figure, indeed, that was, that was being mooted. Even, you know, at uh, £450 million, it may be a good deal, but it's, uh, it's, it's still quite a hefty investment for, for Viacom, and they're going to have to be able to leverage a lot of economies of scale in their programme production, I would have thought, to make it work. I mean, it'd be unfair to ask you to get out the, the crystal ball for Sky, uh, given that you work for them, but if you don't mind me prevailing upon you, do you think this does have some implications for the Sky platform? Because clearly there, there's going to either be some hybrid arrangements where they're going to want to offer their content to both their own Channel 5 and Sky. Now, Sky previously, the platform, had its had kind of exclusivity on that. Well, uh, you know, listen, we'll have to wait and see about that. I, <laughs> Very I'm, well answered. I'm not, going to, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to start uh, making predictions about that now. But, um, you know, any kind of uh, ownership change of this nature is clearly going to have implications. I mean, the, you know, Viacom have made, said at the outset, you know, they're going to continue original programming. They're going to, you know, not rock the boat a lot. But fairly obviously, that you don't, you don't buy a a channel like Channel 5, just to basically let it, you know, tick along doing what it was doing before. They're going to have mm. strategic plans for this, and we'll just have to wait and see what those plans are. It'll be interesting to see whether they use it almost as a sort of advertising platform for subscription channels that they've got, channels such as MTV, using reruns of old series of reality shows and using those to promote the um, a newer series of uh, the same programmes on subscription services. That, w- that would clearly be the logical thing to do. I mean, I think it's, it's called a Barker channel, isn't it? This is the uh, the industry name for, a, for a, a free-to-air channel which you use to then promote your pay TV. And, and I think already it's been suggested that some of the programming that is currently on behind their pay platforms they would make available to it, you know, for example, the kids' stuff. Who's to say that the best British dramas all have to come from the BBC and a little bit of ITV. I mean, I, my personal view of ITV dramas these days is that you know, unless it's a de- detective show, they'll pretty much not bother um, making it uh, to some extent with the BBC unless it's a show about, I don't know, food, some sort of food competition. They might not bother making it. Whatever, so, whatever Bake Off du jour. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I'm a bit of an addict of MasterChef at the moment, so I'm not necessarily complaining about the situation. But there may just be a bit of gap in the market there. To what extent, Jonathan, do you think that terrestrial channels or even channels per se matter these days? Because I don't know about you, but I only ever watch programmes on demand now, and the only channel I will watch if it's on is, you know, and I apologise to Simon for 
kind of flashing him, but his Sky News, if I'm just looking to catch up on the news, I'll stick that on as a live channel. Everything else I watch on demand. Does it even matter that a channel is terrestrial at all? No, I, 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 don't, think, I don't think anybody cares at all. I think people want to watch what they want to watch when they want to watch it. And I'm the same as you. I, I, when I do watch TV, I'm more likely to be on my iPad uh, watching something on iPlayer or, or, or whatever it may be. Uh, I think there is a question, actually, about the BBC licence. There, there used to be a time when you could, have, you could choose either a, a black and white licence or a colour licence. There may be a time in the future where we're looking at you know, maybe paying for on-demand-only mm. licences. I, I think I, I wouldn't be too quick to write off people who are effectively watching as transmitted programming. I think it still represents very significant amount of TV that people watch. I think it's 80% or something of, of TV is actually watched by people as it is transmitted. Mm. Um, you know, fairly obviously, you, you know, you guys are a, a younger and, you know, you're, if you, but if you look at the slightly older audience, I think mm. you'll find that they have much more traditional viewing habits. But if they've and got for the BBC, yeah, of course, the BBC, because it has a public service commitment, mm. you know, and a licence fee, it has to consider all these sectors of, of, of demographics, um, and to you know, you, you may be right in the in the long term that uh, much more will be watched and catch up in on demand or or on uh, mobile devices. But at the moment, broadcast television is still a big thing for a large number of people. But to what extent is Channel Five just yet another number on a Sky EPG? Because whether it's Discovery Network or whatever, or Channel Five, it is just one channel, isn't it? Is, is there really such an advantage now in having that position five on the platform? And I'll give you an example: Evgeny Lebedev plays great emphasis on London Live being kind of Channel Eight on Freeview. Yeah, but, but it's not. It's not know, done anything for them, has it? It's not doing anything. No, but on the other hand, it's you know they're also promoting it very heavily in in their newspaper as as well. You know, I think the I think you're having having a single digit. EPG number is clearly a valuable thing. Otherwise, uh, you know, it wouldn't be guarded so jealously. But it's also to do with the with having you know content people want to watch mm. as well. Um, you know, as you say, you watch. You know, probably the only live stuff you watch is is Sky. We're on five oh one. You know, some of it is to is to do with your position on the EPG. Some of it is to do with with whether or not we're actually putting up stuff that people want to see. Now. After 15 years at the Metro, editor Kenny Campbell has decided to leave the paper for a glamorous new career in PR. He's been with the paper since it opened its doors in 1999. With this old media hand moving to PR, is it increasingly inevitable that journalists will move to PR as their second career? Just why are the top journalists enticed away from the front line? Jonathan? Uh, more money, better career prospects, quite possibly. Uh, journalism is, is changing, and it has been changing for uh, a few years. You've got many people... Um, losing their jobs, the career prospects are declining, whilst in PR, uh, career prospects are actually improving. And actually, it's one thing... Newsrooms are being under-invested in, aren't they, in terms of cost-cutting? Well, I think they are, but we shouldn't, in in this kind of debate, just talk about the the editors and the senior correspondents who have their own brand. We should also be looking at the, uh, the, the regional rooms, the regional newspapers, the local rag, uh, traditionally the sort of breeding ground for future star journalists and, frankly, future bog-standard journalists. Those newspapers are really struggling. They're really struggling. And even the ones that are financially secure are paying very poorly. I mean, I, I've got um, uh, three friends now who uh, went to university, did a journalism course, did all the hard work, all the g- hard graft that it takes to become a journalist, got their first job at you know, the Hartlepool Gazette or whatever it may be, 
and stuck it out for a few years, was realising that they weren't really making any money and they themselves have gone into, into PR. So you've got falling circulations, you've got slumping advertising revenues, increasing competition from online news sources. These things are all going to take their toll and eventually the ambitious young up-and-coming star is going to start being tempted away, I'd have thought. Simon, do you find that people are coming to Sky from different backgrounds now, not the traditional routes, as it were? Well, I mean, we've always taken people from a, a sort of diverse, you know, backgrounds, but I mean, it, people tend not to move from PR into journalism. It, it, the traffic is mostly yeah. the, the other way around. I mean, I think there are two things to say, really, about this. I mean, the first, first of all, you are absolutely right that, you know, the, the number of jobs available for journalists, you know, particularly entry-level jobs, is contracting at a time when actually we're getting more and more journalism graduates on, on the market. You know, there are more courses... Increased supply with uh, lessening uh, demand, uh, <laughs> decreasing demand. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm chairman of the um, training committee of the Society of Editors. So I, I, you know, this is a subject which is very dear to my heart. And, and I think it is something that, that is very difficult because, uh, you know, if you are turning out very large numbers of kids with journalism degrees, either undergraduate or postgraduate degrees, and then they can't find work in the industry, then that's obviously a frustration for them. But I think what we're now seeing is that most of the people who run these courses see PR as a proper option at entry level for people who've done, you know, who've done an undergraduate or postgraduate course. And I think increasingly what you're finding is, is these kids are going straight into, into PR having done journalism training. I, thought, I think that's fine, and, I, and in a way that's better than the old routes where a lot of PR frankly, was populated by people who didn't understand how newsrooms worked. Mm. And, mm. you know, we've all, all of us who've worked in newsrooms have been on the receiving end of calls from from people in PR who well, really... Don't have a clue. Well, they haven't a clue on the mm. kind of structure and the, the kind of protocols of, you know, how newsrooms operate. Absolutely. And, it, you know, I think that's for them. It's a, it's a big inhibition, really. I mean, it's a, it's a big impedament to, to doing the job. So but it also wastes got, your time as well, It's a waste it? of our yeah. time, but if they're never going to land their stories. They're never going to get over their messages unless they, they know the way, the way it all works. So, so I think that's, you know, in many ways, very good development, positive development. I think the kind of journalists having had quite a long career in journalism, then going into PR, sometimes is incredibly successful. And we know people, um, you know, there's some very big names who've had very successful careers in journalism and then moved into public relations, done very well. Mm. I think there are quite a lot who don't. And I think the reason for that is that, you know, base, the basic instincts of the journalists are to query everything to kick over the you know kick against the you know whatever the establishment is really i mean just basically make trouble mm. um and that's something that doesn't really work in pr you know you have to basically be nice to the client yep. you know on the whole the corporate message is the one that you have to follow you know you're, you you have to be much more prepared to follow the company line i think than than a lot of than a lot of journalists do. Most mm. journalists are troublemakers, by and large. I, mean, I think that's what journalism should be about. It's mischief-making. I agree. The, uh, often the challenge with PR is to try and... that The client often wants to take out the spicy thing that would make whatever it is they're trying to do newsworthy. Well, and, yeah, you've and, got to try and, and persuade them to keep it back uh, in. Yeah, and precisely. And, and actually, sometimes the best advice you can give your client is to say nothing. Yes, I've you done know. that as well. Shut <laughs> up. And, uh, shut up. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and again, that's... you know, So journalists, you know, really, they want to do the story. Their instinct is to do the story... And the PR person's instinct is basically do the story if it's a good story, and if it's a bad story, then let's try and sort of kill it off. Um, so these are very different basic kind of working methods, really. And, uh, 
You know, I would say that, I mean, having experienced quite a lot of both sides of, of, of it, I think that not every journalist is suited to PR. I mean, Jonathan, you work for the, you're director of comms for the UK Chamber of Shipping, isn't it? What's your experience been like in terms of dealing with journalists? Do you often find that it's slightly tetchy, that they're looking to kind of go deeper than you want them to do? How yeah, does it work? I, and also you've got to try and attract their attention for a good story. They might think it's slightly boring, but actually it's not. It's generating hundreds of thousands of jobs, etc., etc. How do you capture a journalist's attention? Well, actually, I, you know, I think it's fair to say I've really spent a significant amount of my five years in the shipping industry lobbying the other side, lobbying um, uh, the senior industry leaders to actually be willing to say more. Uh, the, the shipping industry is incredibly important industry, and 95% of our Imports and exports moved by sea. You can't have a trading economy without our industry. But I think traditionally, the, the shipping industry has just been very kind of secretive, maybe a little bit of an, an old boys club. And over the last 10 years or so, the industry, or more, or more 20 years maybe, that, that side of the industry has changed fundamentally beyond recognition. But still, I think it's right to say some of those old attitudes of not wanting to get out there too much, not wanting to say too much, not wanting to take part in the kind of macro-political debates of the day that affect us, be it Europe or Scotland or whatever it may be, that's beginning to change. And as we are changing, we're seeing journalists become a bit more uh, responsive to us. But what does kind of sum up our relationship with certain parts of of the press especially is that unless the ship is sinking, they don't really want to know. So when we've got a a good story to tell, or we think is a good story to tell, we don't get very far. Simon, do you find that in terms of what's the ratio of of people on the other end of the telephone between them wanting to attract and engender your attention and kind of, you know, cover what we're doing, interesting or not, or people who want to avoid your attention and uh, want you to go away at all costs? Most PR uh, that you that you encounter is people who are either you know trying to get you to do a story you know as Jonathan describes. I mean you know they're trying to trying to flog their wares really. And you're right. I mean you know most of the time these things are very difficult to achieve because you know we're not in the business of providing free advertising really. You know so mm-hmm. it has to be something that we we see has got you know genuine editorial merit and uh, and that goes for all serious news organisations. I'm. You know, and then the other sort of PR you deal with is, is people who are managing a bad news story. Well, not a bad news story, but a story where, you know, possibly they didn't necessarily want all the all, all that coverage. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that's the that's the way the world goes around, really. And, and the skill of the PR person is to land the land the stories that maybe we're going to be a bit sceptical about, find devising ways in which they can engage us, you know, using the opportunities that that there are. Um, and then also managing the process when, you know, maybe it's something that, that you know, you possibly you'd rather wasn't in the news mm. or your client would rather wasn't in the news. I mean, that's, you know, that's the business. I, I, you know, I think I go back to what I said right at the beginning, which is the most important thing is understanding the way the newsroom works, mm. understanding our priorities, you know, and the priorities have changed a lot over the years, you know, so, you know, multi-platform journalism has very different requirements from just single platform journalism and journalists are having to do much more now of course you know so a sky reporter for example will do a, a piece for tv but they'll also have to do lives on tv they'll have to write for the web they'll probably have to do something for radio be tweeting as they'll well be and, tweeting and, you know they have a lot more a lot more to do a lot more pressures so uh, you know they rely probably on pr people being helpful 
I always say that there's the PR, there's the me, the journalist and the client. It's like a tripartite relationship. And the most important relationship for me is the relationship between me and the journalist, not my client. Because if the journalist won't cover the story, we're screwed. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And relationships are key. And this is something that, as I said earlier, quite frankly, the shipping industry historically has not been great at this stuff. So it's still new to a lot of people. So that nervousness about even developing relationships with the industry is just beginning with, with the uh, journalists is beginning to disappear which is freeing up a lot of communications people in the shipping industry to be out there to be meeting as many journalists as, as they they possibly can the the really frustrating thing is the kind of you know carpet bombing approach to pr where they spamming just, a lot of journalists well, and, and, and also sending completely unsuitable things so yeah. you know you send a, a tv station for example, a, a story where you say this happened last week and, it, and you know, it was a fantastic picture, you know, yeah. video opportunity, which uh, you didn't know about until afterwards. Yes. And that's just insanity. Um, and likewise, sending kind of stories which are, you know, clearly very regional to a national news organization. Mm. Again, yeah, and I think quite a lot of PR is actually, you know, they don't really think it through and they think, oh, we just send the press release to everybody who's on our database. I think that's quite often, actually, um, uh, PR people with pressure from above. Yeah. Quite, quite often, the sort of senior executives in a company who have a wonderful, I'm sure, taste for business and knowledge about their, their field, but because they watch the news of an evening, they think that they understand journalism as well. And they, they think that a story about their company is a story mm. and uh, a PR person will probably advise them it's really not but they'll be given their orders to get It's difficult. Get, get most, out there. most press releases are actually written for the client not for the journalist because yep. of course it's quotes the managing director at Lens saying how marvellous the company is. Well you're not, you don't want to be told that. I think you make a very good point there. Um, you know the, the, the press release if it's not written for the journalist to begin with you know so you have the mm. you know what's the most interesting thing at the top don't flam it up with some, you know, hyperbole and nonsense. Put the facts in. Um, I think and, most and journalists want a three-line email. Tomorrow at 11 o'clock, this person's going to say this. If you, it, This is the background, and click here if you want to know a bit more. Give pretty, me a bell. Pretty much, <laughs> yes. yes. Maybe a little bit more. But certainly, you know, you don't want the hyperbole. You know, you've seen all this before. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it's pretty patronising. It certainly, you know, sort of treats, often treats journalists as if they're mugs. Agreed. Now, no doubt horrified by the TV coverage of the Oscar Pistorius trial in South Africa, the Lord Chief Justice has tried to put the brakes on live television coverage of UK court proceedings. So is it time, as I said at the beginning, I love this phrase, to put that trusty court chalkboard artist out of work and actually let live cameras into the courtroom so people can see what's going on? Simon? So the Supreme Court has been televised ever, ever since it, it, it took over from the House of Lords. Uh, last year, we, uh, the broadcasters, Sky, BBC, ITN and the Press Association, secured the rights to uh, televise the Court of Appeal, both the civil and the, and the division and the, and the criminal division of the Court of Appeal. Um, that started last October and has been running uh, for some time now. And this is part of something that the government announced back in 2011 when they originally said they were keen to see the televising at least of sentencing remarks in crown courts in criminal trials. Uh, but after discussions with the judiciary, it was decided that the first thing that would happen would be a coverage of the Court of Appeal. We had been hoping that within the next 
six months to 12 months, we would be able to start doing what the government originally intended, which is to do televised uh, sentencing remarks in, in Crown Court trials. But last week, the Lord Chief Justice said that he thought that this should probably be put on hold for the time being because he was very concerned about the um, televising of the historic trial, trial in, in, South, in South, Africa. South Africa. It's a shame because I think that the Lord Chief Justice is, is making a, a mistake to think that what you're seeing in the Pistorius trial would ever be equated mm. to anything that would happen here. It's a judici- different judicial system. The rules are, are entirely different about how it would work. Mm. And I'm not sure that by having an inquiry into what the Pistorius trial is doing in terms of the way it's being televised is actually going to teach you anything at all. So I am anxious to sort of get over to the Lord Chief Justice and the rest of the judiciary and indeed to, uh, to ministers that I, you know, I don't think there is a, a sensible comparison to be made about that. Do you think this is well-intentioned but misguided? What do you think th- I think is it the is. genesis yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think the Lord Chief Justice is absolutely right to be very concerned about uh, any risk to the judicial process. You know, I mean, we believe that justice should be seen to be done, but fairly obviously justice must also be done. And if in the process of seeing it being done... You know, the process of it being done was in any way impeded. It got in the way of it. Then that that would clearly be a bad thing. And Mm. none of us want to see that. The most important thing to get over is that the reason why the Pistorius trial is on TV in the first place in South Africa is because the judge in in this case believed that putting it on TV was an important part of the democratic process because it would show people the way in which justice was being done in South Africa and the fact that that it doesn't matter how high you are or how low you are, you get the same treatment in the courts. Now, I think that that, as a motive, is extremely admirable, and I think that that's something that we should keep in mind in this country. I mean, Jonathan, you stood for Parliament uh, a few years ago. There were many arguments about putting Parliament on television insofar as, you know, would it open it up to scrutiny? People needed to see how the democratic process uh, was, was made. I remember John Major memorably voted against it, saying it would be unwise to put cameras in, but clearly it's been a success. Do you think it's a similar thing here, that it's just the Luddites that are objecting to this, and actually that it is some, it's not particularly pleasant, but it's, justice has to be seen to be done, as Simon says? Well, there, uh, there are some people out there who would quite possibly say that the, uh, the Luddites, as you refer to them, uh, who were campaigning against Parliament being televised, were actually right. Some of the arguments that were being made at the time well, because we can see Parliament warts and all. <laughs> well, I, 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 am, I am supporting of it being on on TV, but some of the arguments that were being made at the time was that MPs would start showboating for the uh, for, for the TV cameras, and that PMQs would descend even further. And you, you could argue that, that, that they were right. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, certainly, how I view uh, PMQs is that it's become a bit of a national embarrassment. I agree. Despite yeah. the fact that its intentions are perfectly honourable, so the. Maybe some parallels, but I don't think that um, the whims and um, weaknesses of lawyers and judges are quite the same as they are of our politicians. Yeah, David Cameron and Ed Miliband are professional politicians. (laughs) Is there an issue? Well, it depends on your level of professionalism. But I mean, I I support the move, but isn't there a worry, some might say, that you're going to get barristers showboating for the cameras, it might put witnesses under expression? It honestly hasn't happened. You know, in, in both the Supreme Court and in the Court of Appeal, it ha- simply hasn't happened. There isn't the showboating. People switch off, they forget the cameras. My, it, it really doesn't happen. My concern wouldn't necessarily be the showboating. My concern would be more about it enhancing and deepening the trial by media 
kind of culture that we do at times have in this country. I, I, I think I've I completely endorsed some of the uh, ideas or accept some of the ideas that are being put forward. I wonder whether it's slightly misty-eyed a, a, a view of, of it being a sort of cornerstone of our democracy. I could accept, I think, maybe the televising of um, uh, the jury's decision and the sentencing that follows, because that, that is seeing the, the results of our judicial processes. I don't think you necessarily would need um, all the, at times, grubby detail. We've had a lot of court cases, very high-profile court cases, over the last year. Some of those accused have been found guilty, some have been uh, found uh, not guilty, and yes, that's part of the system. But it appears that some of those very high-profile court cases should never have gone to court to begin with. I'm thinking about Michael Devell as a, as a star, the Coronation Street actor, who had to suffer weeks and weeks and weeks of um, uh, being accused of being a paedophile all over the newspapers, front page almost every day. It turns out he was absolutely nothing of the sort. And I wonder whether having all the detail, all the arguments, both for the prosecution and the defence, will just make that worse. I think there are a few things, to, important things to say. First of all, um, you know, at this stage, we're only talking about uh, uh, about mm. sentencing remarks in, in Crown Courts. You know, we're not even talking about oh, uh, lawyers, okay. you know, at this stage. Secondly, we're very sensitive, the media very sensitive to the idea that it could intimidate witnesses. And that's something that clearly is something you would never want to see. I mean, I would differentiate between what I call lay witnesses, you know, the eyewitness person who saw the murder kind of yep. thing, and professional witnesses, policemen, forensic mm. scientists, these sort of people. So, I, you know, I think that there is a, a distinction to be drawn there. But, you know, don't, get, don't misunderstand. There is no suggestion at this stage that we want to forcibly televise people who are clearly very nervous and don't well, want to even be... Even Pistorius uh, was offered the option of not having yeah, the so camera Pistorius on hasn't, yeah. hasn't, been, hasn't appeared in front of the camera. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's a very important thing. But like Parliament, the courts are funded out of public money. Now, why shouldn't the people who paid for these things be able to see them in action? I think that, you know, this idea that the elite, the establishment, and let's face it, you know, you stood mm -hmm. to be an MP, you're part of the political class. Yeah, you're part of the problem, Jonathan. You don't want to allow the people who, you know, would have paid your, your salary if you had been elected or, to, well, you know, to actually, yeah, yeah. you know, to, to see you in action. To see the courts in action. By, by that logic, you could probably ha have your, um, your, your child's classroom televised because you're paying for it and it's important to you and it's a cornerstone. Well, it's, of it's, it's slightly different the, because the, it's a... Uh, but you certainly, as a parent, you have the right to go in and talk to the teacher. You, you have the right to go into a courtroom yeah. and watch. For yeah, you do, but the vast majority of people don't have the opportunity to no, do that. I, think it, I don't think that it's a fair analogy, really. But, Sam, let me ask you a question. Then. I mean, I agree with you on, on the reasons to do it, but can I ask you about the commerciality of it? There must be a commercial uh, reason no, behind this. Sky News is a commercial particularly, channel. No, is it that I people mean, watch it? Or? No, you know, I, I, I don't think there particularly is, really. And, you know, we don't see it in that way. You know, we're not going to suddenly have a, a court channel, I don't think. I mean, we see it as being a, a, an opportunity to enhance our coverage. Mm. You know, that's really what it's about, in the same way as, I mean, I've been, because I've you know, been in this business a long time. I remember before television in Parliament and, you know, 
in fact, even before radio was in Parliament. Wow. Only, you know, you don't reason, look old enough. <laughs> well, the, the reason why we wanted to do it then was because we believed it would enhance our news coverage. And that's the same with, with the courts. So, gentlemen, just to bring it to a close, at this point in the podcast, we normally ask you to let listeners know what your Twitter handles are so that they can follow you on Twitter, etc., or get in touch. So, Simon, do you want to let I, people know? I'm at Simon Bucks, very simply. So, and you, yeah, your corporate feed is, of, of course, at Sky News. It's Sky News and it's also Sky News Break. Sky News, that's so, for breaking news. Yeah, you for have breaking a P- news, yeah. And there's a yeah. PR function at Sky News PR, which I've followed. Sky news, that's right, there are a whole range of them. There are, aren't yeah. there? Yeah. Right. If, you, if you basically, if you just put in Sky News into the Twitter search box, you'll find them all. Excellent, but at Simon Books is the one to follow that's for me. you personally. Yeah. Jonathan? Well, I don't have the luxury of uh, of having at Jonathan Roberts, unfortunately, because apparently there's a very famous ballet dancer called Jonathan Roberts. Is it you? Come on, we now is the time you. to... Uh, you, you are did. wearing quite a fetching tutu, if you don't mind me <laughs> telling our listeners that. No, I'm, I'm the reverse. I'm at Roberts Jonathan. I'm the same because I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard, and the at Paul Blanchard guy has about two followers, but beat me to it. Anyway, not to worry. And your, your corporate handle is at UK Ships, is that right? It's at UK Ships, absolutely. And the Media Focus podcast is on Twitter too, at media underscore focus underscore UK. And you can follow me personally as well, at Paul W.R. Blanchard. Thanks for listening and see you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!